Listeners, welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim and I am the host of this program. There's only a few more weeks left until Christmas the day in which we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ who came down on this land for our salvation. But when looking around, you see that everyone, even people of the secular world, celebrate and enjoy Christmas. Of course you see people in places that sincerely celebrate the birth of Christ, but the majority of people celebrate the holiday with Christmas trees, lights, Santa Claus, Rudolph the Reindeer, and presents. They themselves have their own way in enjoying this day. All of this is a holiday culture that was conceived by the devil's schemes so that the true meaning of Christmas, to celebrate and honor the birth of Jesus Christ, can be lost. Through this culture, the essential meaning of Christmas has been lost. But I hope that instead of celebrating together, just like the rest of the world by feeling the pleasure and happiness of the lights and carols and Christmas trees, we may cherish and remember the love of Jesus as he loved us so much to come down as man to give us the greatest gift of salvation. So today I would like to share with our listeners a writer of a hymn that we commonly sing on Christmas. He was known as one of the greatest preachers in America and also wrote the hymn titled, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Today I would like to share with everyone about Phillips Brooks who pastored Boston's Trinity Church and was called into heaven at the age of 57. We'll come back to share more after our first song. Christmas angels 
abide with us I'm Lord Phillips Brooks was born in December of 1835 in the town of Boston, Massachusetts, as a second child of six. His parents were very faithful and lived to be a great role model to their children and emphasized Christians must live a pure life and must strive to live in faith. Every night after dinner, his family would gather together to read the word, pray, and worship together. Every Sunday, they would memorize a hymn together and live in efforts of living by the lesson of what that hymn taught. Growing up, Brooks attended Boston Latin School and attended Harvard University for his college years. After graduating, he worked briefly as a school teacher at Boston Latin School. But due to his shy personality, he was not able to continue teaching and ended up being fired. He felt he failed miserably, incompetent, regretted all that he studied for, and began to rethink about his future. Eventually, at the age of 20, in 1855, he began to study at the Virginia Theological Seminary to become a priest. As I mentioned earlier, Brooks had a very shy personality. He had trouble with public speaking and looked timid when around people. Based on the words of the people who heard his very first sermon, they claimed that it was almost unbearable to listen to. However, he had many fellow colleagues who knew these weaknesses of his and encouraged him continuously. With the strength of these encouragements and with the help of God, his sermons became better and better as time went on. And eventually he was known as one of the greatest spiritual preachers around. His sermons had power that brought great influence into people's hearts. It brought out hidden sin within people, changed their ways and personalities, and not only did it lead their lives to be lived as true Christians led by the Spirit, but Phillips Brooks himself spared time every day to meet these individuals and became a role model in their lives. Among his many famous quotes, he said something like this, Character may be manifested in the great moments, but it is made in the small ones. Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Then the doing of your work shall be no miracle, but you shall be the miracle. The famous Helen Keller, whom we all know, was deaf and blind, and they say that she was also greatly impacted by Phillips Brooks. These great sermons of him brought great impact into the religious world, 
people began to wonder how someone who was so shy and timid became one of the greatest preachers. He was offered from many people from different schools, including Harvard University, to come and become a professor. He rejected and continued to serve at the church he was ministering, Boston Trinity Church. After 22 years of ministering, he died at the age of 57. The inspiration that led Phillips Brooks to write the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, was from when he was at the age of 30 during December 1865, when he visited the village of Bethlehem in Jerusalem. As he traveled and toured around, he was able to vividly feel the footsteps of Jesus. While in Bethlehem, Brooks attended the Christmas Eve service at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. The service was full of songs and lasted for over five hours. To be so near the actual birthplace of Christ on Christmas Eve was what inspired Brooks. So three years later, in 1868, he came back to the States and wanted to write a Christmas carol that the children could sing to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And that song is the hymn we commonly sing on Christmas, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan of Cornerstone Church. Today's topic is Slavery Can Be Fun, Part 1, based on James chapter 1, verse 1. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Francis. I tell people, I go, if you read all the encouraging notes I get in a year, your head would get so big. And yet if you read all the hate mail, <laughs> you'd want to kill yourself. I got so many just notes, like wonderful notes of people just going, man, that, that was life-changing. That was the greatest message I ever heard. To honestly, things written like, it's time for you to leave town. You know, you've lost it. You know, quote unquote, move to India, get out of Simi Valley, you know, whatever, just... The, the craziest things, and it's like, man, it's like these extremes where I'm just going, wow, this is cool. My, my, there's not a boring day in my life, you know? But the whole med, the thing that was so encouraging, though, was the question that I was asked over and over and over again by you guys, and then I'm hearing through the grapevine people keep asking our pastors is, what should I do? You know? I, I, people are saying, man, it was like you stuck a dagger in my gut and I just was like, oh, you're absolutely right. That is, that's what the word says. So what do I need to do? Do I need to sell my house? Do I need to quit my job? Just tell me what to do. What do I do? And, and hearing that over and over again, you know how encouraging that is because, man, when you read Acts chapter 2, Peter, pre it felt so much like the early church, which is everything we're after here, right? It's like, let's get back to the way it was. And you see in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon. But do you remember what the people say in verse 37? It says, when the people heard this, it says, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Okay, And so it was just this idea of like, oh, I feel like you just stuck a knife in my heart. But now you got to tell me what to do because I will do anything. And people are just going, whatever, 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 just tell me what to do. And the more I heard that, I go, wow, this is so cool. This is exactly the way the church is supposed to respond. But you got to understand that it would be wrong for me to answer that question. What do you do? It would be wrong for me to lay out, well, if you don't want to be lukewarm, then here are the things you do and list them out. First, sell your house, then quit your job, then do this, then do that. You know, that's not for me to say. It's hard enough for me to figure out God's will for my own life and for me to tell you what he's telling you to do because it's going to look different for each one of us. It's going to look completely different. Some of you go, man, should I sell your house? I don't know, maybe. For some of you, though, I, I think you're supposed to expand your house and bring in more people. 
You know, I don't know. I don't know what God is calling you specifically to do. Some people go, you know, I'm going to quit my job because it's not doing anything for the kingdom. It's, it's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't interact with people. I'm not witnessing to people. I'm not being a light there, you know. And then I had another guy call me and go, you know what? I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to work harder at my job. In fact, I, I believe God has called me to make an absolute fortune. I believe God has given me a gift to make money and I'm supposed to make a ton of it and give it all away. And I go, that sounds good. That's, that's great. You know, give to the poor. You've been given this ability. And he goes, you know what? For me to be a good steward, I need to work harder at my job. I need to make a lot more money. I have the ability to make it. I mean, he can make millions of dollars and go, you know what? I can do that. I believe that's what I'm supposed to do. And I go, you know what? Sounds good to me. If I were in your shoes, maybe I'd probably do the same thing. But I can't tell you step by step, do this, do this, do this, because it's going to look different from all of us. As long as you are praying it through, as long as you are really searching your own heart and going, okay, God, I want to do, because Jesus said, this Christianity thing, following me is simple. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Period. That's it. That sums up everything. And so when you make your decisions, go, okay, what is the most loving thing I could do in the sight of God and for other people? That's all. And it's going to look different for for you than it will for me. What's the most loving thing you can do? If you're making your decisions based upon what's most loving, not, not based upon your own desires or whatever, but based upon what's most loving. It's like, I love God. And so I'm going to do this. And so I drive what I drive because I believe it's what God would want me to drive. I live where I live because I believe it's where God wants me to live. I, I prayed it through and I, I don't think I'm, I'm fudging here. I don't think it's me. It's just, this is how I can love God. This is how I can love people. And so how you do that, as long as you've prayed through it, you know, and, and you know, you know what, I'm doing this for God. I'm doing this for other people, you know, because I love other people. Then do it. But it's going to look different for everyone. Another question that people ask this week. Why is it that some churches I go to, I always leave happy? And, uh, you know, I've got notes and people saying, you know what, I'm done with this church. You know, there's this other one where I leave happy every time. And people are burdened because they go, man, my friend left the church because he just, he wants to leave happy every time. And, uh, you guys, the, the answer of why you don't always leave happy here and I don't always leave happy here is uh, because we teach this whole book, okay? There are, there are certainly passages where you just go, man, I am just so pumped up, so fired up. And there's other passages when you go, ooh, I don't match up to that. Gosh, I, I get convicted. I need to change. The Bible talks about how this book is, is, is to encourage, but it's also to exhort and to rebuke. And it's both. And there's some passages, and we're not going to skip any passage. I mean, how do you preach Revelation 3 in the lukewarm church and make it a happy message? You know, it's like... Ooh, he's going to spit you out. Let's all spit. You know, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's just, wow. The, Jesus says right there, man, this is, I'm rebuking you right now. He says, this is a rebuke. He goes, because I love you. I love you enough to say the hard things. That's what a parent does. That's what a loving father does. You love enough to say the hard things and hurt sometimes. When Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians, he writes a second letter and goes, man, I could tell by that first one, I really grieved you. I made you sad. And he goes, but I don't feel bad about it. He says in St. Corinthians, I don't feel bad. He goes, because if you're godly, he goes, godly sorrow leads to repentance. It's when you're sad in a godly way, it leads you to change and it, it brings you to this joy. And um, uh, I, I think about um, Jesus. I, I, I mean, okay, because some people that people are still like the jury's out, like, but you don't believe me, like why I left this summer of just really... I wanted to just find out what does God want for the church? What does he want for my life? And things were so good. It was not that I was burned out. Usually a pastor takes some time off because he's burned out. I wasn't burned out. Things were going so good that it scared me. Because I kept asking myself, would Jesus be this popular? If Jesus had a church in Simi Valley, how many people would go to it? If the Apostle Paul had a church in Simi Valley... How many people would go to it? And it, it was almost the opposite. Like, God, it just seems a little too popular here. 
And, and I even talked to my wife about it. I go, yeah, you know, sometimes I, I'm concerned because Luke 6, 26 says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. He goes, you better be careful when everyone's speaking well of you because that's the way they treated the false prophets. See, the only person, the only people that can please everyone are the false teachers. You just say what people want to hear and then they'll just keep coming and keep loving you. He goes, but if you lay it out, the, the, the ones, he goes, that, that lay it out, you know what, they're not going to be accepted by everyone. Jesus, when he preached, people were leaving constantly. And so when you go, oh no, people are leaving, that's not always bad. That's not always the, the wrong thing. In fact, I get concerned when people don't leave. I get concerned when it becomes too popular. Man, I get some of the notes this week that were filled with just venom, and I'm like, oh, good. Woo! You know, I, I'm not a false prophet. <laughs> you do hate me. You know, it's just... There is, it's like the sick side of man. Jesus wasn't popular. And he says in John 15, I think verse 18, he goes, man, when people hate you, keep in mind they hated me first. You know, if the world hates you, keep in mind they hated me first. There's got to be some of that in our lives. Otherwise, we're just going around pleasing people. Second Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, he says to this young pastor. He says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage, with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. He says, there's going to come a day. He goes, Timothy, you just keep laying it out there. Okay, just lay it out there. Encourage, rebuke, do whatever you need to do. Be patient, just, but say it all. He goes, and understand there's going to come a day when people will not put up with that type of teaching. Instead, they're going to leave and they're going to find teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. Not what they need to hear, but what they want to hear. And he says, so just be ready for that. He goes, at the end times, it's not going to be popular. People are going to be about themselves. They're going to love themselves and they're going to want to just hear what they want to hear. They'll only, they'll only listen to messages that they agree with. See, that's the hard thing about this book is that there are many things I read here and I go, I don't think that way. That doesn't agree with what Francis Chan would come up with. And, and at that point you decide, okay, then am I going to be my own God and make the scripture submit to me and I'll only accept the parts that I agree with? Or do you put yourself under and go, well, I think this, this says this, I'm going to go with that. And I'm going to go uh, along with what that says, even though it doesn't sit well with me, doesn't fit with me. Otherwise, you're not really submitting to God. You're just saying, well, I'll only submit to God so long as he agrees with me. And then who really is God at that point? You know, and then so Paul tells Timothy, look, you got to lay it out. You got to say what needs to be said. So I, I, you know, after looking back at my notes, you know, and you just want to make sure and everything else, I look back at everything I said. I don't take back a single word, not one word of what I said two weeks ago. In fact, I have something to add to it. Okay. And, um, no, 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 but, but listen, it's, it's because I do believe the call to follow Jesus is a call to give up everything. You give it all up. But what I want to add to it is you give it all up and you have to be happy about it. Okay? I, I believe this is biblical. Is not only do you have to give up everything for the sake of the gospel and just go, you know what, I don't care. It's all. I, I, you can have it all, God. I don't care. You have to get to that point. But not only that, but you have to be happy about this decision. There has to be a joyful giving away. You have to understand that you are getting the better end of the deal. Okay? I, I believe I can support this biblically. Um, I mean, after all, even the passages I used that week, did the people leave bummed out? Did the, the guy who found the treasure in the field, I mean, what's the kingdom of God like? A guy who finds a treasure in a field, right? Going, man, look at this amazing treasure. Did he leave sad? Did he go and sell all of his possessions and go, all right, I'll sell them? No, it says with great joy. With great joy. He goes, man, are you kidding me? I can have that 
Yeah, you can have it all. I don't care. Take it all. Did Zacchaeus leave bummed out? No, he didn't leave bummed out. He jumps out of the tree and goes, man, give half of everything I own to the poor. And with the rest of the money, let me pay back everyone I ripped off. I'll give you four times whatever I took from you. Here, take it, take it, take it. Because I have God now. It was this joy in finding God. It's this treasure. That's what I was getting across with the whole lukewarm passage. He says, man, if you overcome, you can sit on my throne. And then we read about the throne. We go, okay, you know what? I'm convinced. You, you can have it all. There needs to be joy. The only person, there was only one person I talked about last week that left sad. Who was that? The rich young ruler, right? When God says, give it all away. And he goes, but I'm rich. I, you understand how much I have? And he just walks away because he had so much wealth. He's just going, man, I don't know. See, that's a picture of a person who doesn't get it. The guy that walks away bummed out is the one who has taken his eyes off the treasure and doesn't realize what he's getting for what he's sacrificing. You know, I I was trying to think, okay, because our problem, because we we all get sucked into this world, right? We all get tempted by things. The, The problem is we take our eyes off of the treasure. The moment we take our eyes off of the treasure and what we're getting, that's the only way we can get bummed out. Because we, we just stare at what we're giving up. And if you really looked at what we're getting, you'd go, oh, yeah, 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 I forget. Yeah, I don't care about that stuff. We take our eyes off of the prize. And I was trying to think, okay, how do I, again, just get us to understand what we're getting out of this deal of surrendering to God? And what is the best way to communicate it? And I, I thought, you know, I don't know if you remember like a year ago, a year ago, I gave a message, and in it, I, I showed a presentation of, of the earth and what it would look like if we pulled further and further away from the earth. And I watch that video every once in a while, man, because it just does my soul so much good to just back up and go, oh, that's right. I know the God of the universe. You know, and I watched that video, and, uh, and I thought, you know, I want to show it again this weekend just to remind us of, okay, here we are on the earth, and here's the creator of it all, and we can sit on his throne and so it's just something I found on a Macintosh program called Starry Night Pro and kind of tweaked it myself so we can, I could narrate it and show what you see as you pull away from the earth and give us a picture of the universe. And it just helps us to remind us, it helps to remind us who we are and who God is and the prize that we get. It's always just so humbling, you know, just to go, how often I wake up in the morning and think that I'm so significant or, you know, like I've got so much to give up and, you know, and you, you look at that and go, wow, I can know the creator of all of that. I can sit on the throne with him. You see, if you walk away sad going, yeah, but I have a neat car. I, I just go, <laughs> man, you didn't get it. You, you didn't, you didn't quite get it. You know, when you, when you just look at your stuff and what you have and you're bummed out like the rich young ruler, I'm going, you somehow are not seeing the prize. You, you don't get the treasure because those who get the treasure are so fired up that they could care less about this stuff. I, I, I had, I've had people leave the church and say, well, you know, Francis says it's not okay for me to get a Porsche. I'm like, I never said that. I'm just going, why do you care? You got the God of the universe and buy whatever you want. I don't care. Drive whatever you want. Live wherever you want. I'm just going, man, if you get that, if you keep your eyes on the prize, on God himself and sitting on the throne and the creator, you just realize, man, I could see why he'd be disgusted with me comparing him to anything on this earth or for me to treasure things on this planet. I want the eternal rewards. You know, God wants us not only to give everything up, but to be happy about it. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? And anyone who comes to him must believe what? That he exists, and what else? And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Okay, that's very important. God says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Like, like you, obviously, you, you can't come to him without believing that he exists. But he also says, I don't want you coming to me unless you also believe that I'm a rewarder of those who earnestly seek me. Because I don't want you coming to me unless you really believe that you're getting the better end of the deal. 
and then I'm the one that's rewarding you. I don't want you coming here all bummed out like, oh, okay, I'll follow you. I'll be your servant. I guess I have to. He goes, then don't even bother. He goes, you only come to me. I will only let you come to me if you believe that I reward those who earnestly seek me. Those who not casually seek me, not those who in a lukewarm way seek me, but those who earnestly, passionately seek after me. If I am sought after and you believe that it's for your good and that I am the rewarder, then come to me. That's what faith is. You you can't come bummed out. It's necessary. It's it's like uh, if I said, um, hey, you guys, I, I need someone to come wash my car once a week. Um, actually, both of my cars, you know, my wife's van and my car. There'd probably be some people here that would do it, you know, go, all right, fine, whatever, you're the pastor, we'll serve you. But then if I said, I'll pay you a thousand bucks every time you wash my car, that's like, okay, okay, you know, suddenly it's a joy, right? Why? Because suddenly you're not the giver anymore, right? Suddenly I'm the giver and you're the one that's being rewarded. God says, if you come to me, I don't want you to come like, fine, I'll serve you. You need to come going, oh, no, no, you're the giver. You're the rewarder. God God wants that glory for himself. He is the only giver in this room. Okay, you guys, we're not givers. We're not giving to God. When we took that offering, it wasn't really us giving him anything. Every time we give, we get the better end of the deal. You see, uh, you know, we're, we're starting the book of James. I'm just preaching the first verse this week, and then Todd's going to take, you know, the next section, and we're going to go back and forth. But the first verse of James, James starts out in James 1.1. He says, James, a servant or a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. First thing James, James calls himself, when he introduces himself as he's writing this letter, he goes, I'm James, I'm a slave. Okay, when you hear that, that's a negative term, isn't it? I mean, when you think about slavery, immediately negative thoughts come to your mind. The moment we hear slavery, there's like this boom, oh, automatic, like, oh, this awful thought of a slave. I don't want to be a slave. I don't want to be a slave. I don't want to be a servant. But James, that's how he introduces himself. But here's my question. I understand that slavery to me has a negative connotation. But can slavery ever be a good thing is slavery ever a good you are listening to unity in christ the english hour in our broadcast program here at heart and soul gospel ministries we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you, so if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, please feel free to email us at askhsgm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul Podcast on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. There will be a slight change in today's broadcast. In place of our program titled Christian Ethics, we will have an interview with Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Hello everyone, welcome to the program Good Neighbor. I am your host Sean Kang. Today I invite a real good neighbor who is a good neighbor, not only spiritually but also in distance-wise, closest to neighbor to us. Uh, Let me introduce the senior pastor of Calvary Community Church, Pastor Mark Martin. Hello, Pastor Mark. How are you? I'm doing fine. Sean, how are you? Honored to have you here. Well, it's a privilege for me to be here. I so appreciate this ministry. 
As I already introduced, you are really good neighbor to us because as uh, many of our listeners already know that we purchased this new building, Heart and Soul new building from Calvary Church for $10. That was amazing grace of God uh, shown to us through your ministry. So thank you. Thank you for being a real good neighbor for us. You are a great neighbor to us as well. When I look across the street and I say, hey, there's a ministry, you know, right across the street, I'm hoping that the whole neighborhood will turn into places where ministries could could land. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, yes, that would be great. By the way, uh, I already introduced a little bit about you to our listeners, but would you introduce yourself a little bit more to our listeners? Sure, absolutely. I'm the pastor of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona, and I have a wife. Her name is Leslie. We've been married 35 years, and I have two daughters and a son, and uh, one of the daughters is married, and uh, my son is going to Christian University. Uh, So he feels uh, the call of the Lord on his heart, maybe to go into some kind of ministry we're waiting and and seeing. So. It's been a real joy to to have a wife like mm-hmm. I do who has walked w- with me, you know, basically from the time that shortly after I was saved mm-hmm. and I got to share the Lord with her mm-hmm. and she came to understand the gospel. Wow. And then to have her with me in ministry, I just mm-hmm. can't tell you how important it is to have your spouse mm-hmm. alongside you in ministry. And maybe there's somebody listening who is in ministry. Mm-hmm. They'd be smart if they are listening. <laughs> and, you know, to cultivate that walk with your, your spouse is so important. And she's just been precious. And that she leads true. a women's ministry here that's large. She has a radio broadcast okay. daily. Mm-hmm. And I do as well. That's a little bit of personal family history right there. What a great family. Uh, Anyway, you were saying that you met your wife, Leslie, right after you believed in Jesus Christ. Uh, Was she a Christian when you first time met her? Well, I'd like to take a step maybe before Mm -hmm. Leslie and I met each other. We were both raised Seventh-day Adventist. She's like a fourth generation. I'm a fifth generation Seventh-day Adventist. So our families go way back, nearly to the beginning of that religion. I guess so. My grandparents raised me to love God. My parents weren't believers. I looked to my grandparents to mentor me in the faith, and they were just loving, godly people, Mm -hmm. and I'd spend the weekends with them. When I was growing up, I understood the law, Mm -hmm. the Ten Commandments, that was talked about all the time, but I didn't understand the gospel because it really wasn't preached. Mm -hmm. Uh, The church has a prophetess, Mm -hmm. she's not living, Mm -hmm. but her writings, she has 66 books, and they are all considered to be as inspired as the Bible. In fact, they interpret the Bible. If the Bible says something, Ellen White will tell you what it really means. Wow! Growing up, it never had the assurance of salvation because the prophetess said that it was a sin to say that we were saved. So we never could say we were saved. We also were taught, and this is an Adventist doctrine, they believe that in 1844, Jesus started a judgment in heaven. And it is a judgment of believers by their works and their works will determine their salvation. So we never knew when our names will come up in this judgment. And we were taught that we needed to be perfect, totally overcome our sin, because when our names came up in judgment, our sins would be weighed. If we'd overcome them, they would be forgiven, put away. Wow. But if we never had assurance, and we really believed we were going to enter into judgment, though now I know the blessing, and every believer should just be thrilled by this, mm-hmm. is that there is no condemnation right. for those who are in Christ Jesus, right. and that we do not enter into judgment, mm-hmm. but we've passed out of death into life. But these script, and John says, these things I've written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know mm-hmm. that you have eternal life. Right. We never read those right. because we, we weren't taught to read the scripture book by book and verse by verse. Well, I didn't know they were teaching that way and didn't even know you actually grew up while you were learning that kind of a theory. 
I don't want to belabor this, but it really has a lot to do with my testimony and my wife's. Wow. We never had assurance. We would read the prophecies' books more than we would read the Bible because we were told she was easier to understand than the Bible. The Adventists also believe that when you die, you cease to exist. They don't believe that you go to heaven. Though the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, to depart is to be with Christ. And with these doctrines, we were so confused because how can you believe you're saved by grace through faith, not of your works, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, and yet have your name coming up in a judgment sometime, any time. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a, a wane of your good and bad work. So it was contradicting, you know, talk, like talking out of both sides of your mouth. I came to the point, I grew up with my parents not being believers, mm-hmm. as I said. My dad was an alcoholic and very abusive. And my father tried to kill me three times, wow. tried to choke me to death twice, and Uh, There was, the last time was when he came at me with a butcher knife and he was going to uh, stab me. And what happened was, and I want to be respectful of him, and I've got to say this too, just before he died, a few months before he died, I got to lead him to the Lord. So praise the Lord. And we're going to have a great relationship in heaven. That's what I told him. We had a lousy one on earth. There was a metal vase, not Mm -hmm. a big, it's just a a lightweight metal vase. I reached for it. I tried to keep the the knife from hitting me, Mm -hmm. and I... The vase hit him in the, the forehead, and he started to bleed. He dropped the knife, and I ran out of the house, and I hid underneath our camp trailer. How old were you? I was 15. Wow. What I did was, underneath there, the devil just started condemning me. He mm-hmm. said, how could you have done this terrible thing? The Bible says, honor your father and your mother. Right. And all this condemnation... I didn't know grace at all. So under this condemnation, I felt that if God hated me, then I would hate God, and I wouldn't have anything to do with him since he wasn't going to have anything to do with me. And so I got rid of all my religious books. I got rid of everything except uh, I had a Bible, and I became suicidal. I was thinking about how I could kill myself. And that's how low you can get when you don't understand grace and you don't understand the gospel. Mm -hmm. And one day, a couple months later, I felt this impulse to get up out of my bed mm-hmm. and to go pick up a Bible that was sitting on a shelf. I just felt like I had to, this compulsion. So I went and I got it. I shook my fist at God and I said, you had better tell me, and I, I cursed at God, mm-hmm. that you blankety-blank love me or I'll never have anything to do with you the rest of my life. You know, that. how could I talk to God that way? It was so, so bad, so wrong. So I opened the Bible, and it opened up to the book of Leviticus, which <laughs> was all about sacrifices and law. I looked again to the ceiling, and I shook my fist, and I said, yeah, that's just like you, and I cursed again. Mm-hmm. Nothing but a bunch of rules and regulations, and I threw my Bible across the room, and it hit the wall and fell on the floor. I again felt compelled to go pick it up again. It was just like I had to. I picked it up again and opened it up, and it fell open to Isaiah 43, And Isaiah 43 says that when you go through the the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the fire, you won't be consumed because it goes on to say, and this was underlined and I did not underline it in this Bible. I never did it. Mm. And it says, because you are precious and honored Mm. and I love you. That's the only place in the Bible where God says, I love you. And here I had shook my fist at at heaven Mm -hmm. and said, unless you and I cursed to God, tell me you love me. I'll never have anything to do with you again as long as I live. And God opened the Bible up to that, you know, that very passage. The mathematical probability of that is astronomical. Mm -hmm. So that was the beginning of a turn in my life. About the same time, I had friends that were leading the youth group who had come to understand the gospel. They had started reading the book of Romans, Mm. and they started questioning things in the Seventh-day Adventist church because it didn't align with what they were reading, you know, about the gospel of grace. So they shared with me, 
And I remember them kind of sitting me down and they had a little tiny house with a huge couch. Yeah. And they shared with me the gospel in such a clear way. And I've used how they shared the gospel with me for thousands of other people. I came to understand that my righteousness was in heaven. Mm-hmm. I was saved by Jesus' doing and his dying and yes. his rising again. I really believed that we could change the church. Mm-hmm. And about that time, I went to a Seventh-day Adventist college Mm -hmm. in Northern California, Pacific Union College. Mm -hmm. Basically started a Romans Bible study. It became very large because so many of the Adventist kids were seeking Mm -hmm. for grace to understand. I went to a Bible study group, Mm -hmm. and I was early, and Leslie, my wife, was even earlier. Mm -hmm. She wasn't my wife at the time. And I looked at her, and the moment I saw her, I thought, this is the person I'm going to marry. And I hadn't been thinking about marriage at all. I hadn't ever had a girlfriend. This is the person I'm going to marry. And so four years later, we did get married. But she didn't understand the gospel either. She had been raised just like me in the Mm -hmm. Seventh-day Adventist church, and she was very devout, Mm -hmm. keeping the Sabbath, you know, the Saturday as we did, not eating any unclean foods, no pork, no, yeah. Mm-hmm. I got to share the gospel with her. She responded the same way. The wonder of grace, you know, mm-hmm. that don't ever take that for granted. Any Christian who's listening. Yeah. So there on the campus, we really felt like we could, we were part of a movement that would reform the Adventist church and mm-hmm. bring grace into it. Uh, long story short, that didn't happen, mm-hmm. you know. After college, we came to Arizona We were called by uh, the Arizona Conference of Seventh-day Adventists Mm -hmm. to be at a church here, and that was in 1980. I was an assistant pastor at the Glendale Seventh-day Adventist Church Mm -hmm. in Glendale. So you were able to learn about the truth of the gospel and God's grace, but you were still be the part of the Adventist church at the time which is still practice and place emphasis on the keeping the mosaic law and personal works. Didn't you have any issues or was there any issues arise? Well, we thought we could reform it. Okay. We thought that we could bring grace mm-hmm. to it. We could mix the law mm-hmm. and grace. Okay. We saw the Sabbath in that it represented rest in Jesus. We didn't understand that it was a sign of the old covenant, Mm -hmm. that we're under a new covenant. You know, we were just kind of going through this process. What we also found out was in college, there were scholars who were discovering that the prophetess had plagiarized Mm -hmm. much of her writings. Mm -hmm. We were taught that every word she was given was from God. Mm -hmm. And when they began to find out that she had plagiarized different books that she had in her library, Mm It was a, it caused a huge turmoil in the church, as you could imagine. I was asked by one of the religion professors that I was assisting to teach his class some, and it was we all had to take a prophetic guidance class. It was a class about Ellen White. Mm-hmm. We all had to take that when you go to the college. So he said, I want you to research this research about her plagiarism and basically show that it's not true. So they let me into the vault of the... Pacific Union College Library. They had a a locked vault where they kept books that were anti-Adventist, books Mm. that were in her library and all. Mm. And I started doing some comparison and some study, and I found out even more plagiarism. Uh, We found out that we were taught when Ellen White said, I was shown, or in the visions of the night, the angel spoke to me, We were, you know, that was from God. And I discovered that there were times when she said, in the visions of the night, and then she would say something. It was in a book. She (laughs) copied it. And it was, many believers can't understand what this did, but it was like uh, for a Mormon to find out Joseph Smith was a false prophet. We discovered that Ellen White was a false prophet because she contradicted the Bible Mm -hmm. with her teachings. Mm -hmm. She had deceived people 
by plagiarizing mm-hmm. and deceiving people, thinking that they had written their writings. And so this was now, and we didn't believe in that judgment anymore that, that I talked about mm-hmm. earlier. Yes. That was a false teaching. And mm-hmm. so we began to be in this kind of in-between place. Mm-hmm. We had been taught that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the only true church on earth. It's the remnant church. Every other church is Babylon. That's mm-hmm. what we would say. And so we didn't have any idea where to go or what to do. So what happened next? We came out to Arizona in this state of wanting to change uh-huh. things, but the system was too big. There was no way it could happen. And so after a couple of years, I taught a message on grace and made an invitation for people to accept Jesus. And the, I would say 99% of the church came forward of the Adventist church that I was an assistant pastor at. Well, that made the pastor very upset and the governing authorities as well. And that led to them um, saying they were going to fire me, and I decided that I would resign. In that, we lost everything. We lost all our friends. We went from 800 people loving us to 800 people rejecting us. Our whole life was around Adventist doctors. We had our own doctors, our own hospitals, our own school system, our own food. Now we were rejected. When you were kicked out from the Adventist church, it would have been nice to come to regular church. Uh, Have you ever considered that at the time? Um, We had been taught that people who worship on Sunday would Mm. someday persecute us. So where are we going to go? Right. (laughs) (laughs) That is quite understandable since you were taught that people who go to church on Sunday were your enemies. Uh, So it wouldn't have been easy to attend another church that has a service on Sunday. But I am curious as to what happened afterward then. And fortunately, we had met some Christians, some great Christians who took us under their wing. Uh And uh, we began to see that other Christians were safe. They were so good to us. So we off and on, during the time when we were transitioning out of Adventism, Mm -hmm. we would visit a Baptist church. We were so blessed (laughs) because they talk about the gospel and they were friendly, Uh you know. Well, my wife was teaching for the Adventist school, Mm -hmm. the elementary school, and the kids, after I resigned, she kept her job for a a week or so later, the kids started throwing rocks at her and said, we don't have to listen to you, your husband's a bad man, and so she had to quit, but she literally had rocks thrown at her. So now we have no jobs, we have no money, and we know nobody. And our, her, our families, Leslie's family, her dad was so upset, he wouldn't talk to her. Her brother said he right. would kill me. And uh, since then, her brother has come to know the Lord, and he's an assistant to a pastor in Maryland. So <laughs> right. God has done such great, great. things. But, it, but at the time, no. No, wow. it was so scary, and it was such a step of faith. And it truly, we lost everything now i'm only saying that to encourage people who may be in that place where your family Mm -hmm. isn't happy about where you're accepting jesus Mm -hmm. or you're following the lord and it may cost you to follow jesus and people need to know that there is a time when we take up our cross and we follow jesus i have to say it it's all worth Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, a thousand times what we ever left but i just i want to emphasize that sometimes there's a cost later we felt like we needed to start a church i'd never been taught how to start a church Mm. so we just decided i'd find a school that we could meet in and there were we started that first sunday with nine people plus my wife Uh and me so we had 11 people that very first week Mm. so the church stayed very very small for the first 10 years i'm just kind of jumping ahead here Mm. then We grew, and we went into the auditorium, kind of a cafeteria, and then a man came in and split the church. And so we went down to, we had been about 50, we went down to about 25. A man came and break your church into half? I didn't know you have to go through that. I thought your church would just uh, keep growing without any problem. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
We went through a lot. Uh-huh. It really helps us. Uh, you know, if anybody in ministry needs a listening ear, <laughs> my wife I and I will be there. We can listen. We can wow. pray with you at least. Eventually, we needed to move out of that school, and we found another school near where our church is now. And we were able to lease the wood shop. It used to be a wood shop for the school. <laughs> So we leased the wood shop. We had a little room that we divided, another little room we divided into three classrooms. And the church stayed, like I said, around 50 people, 60 people for about nine years. Mm-hmm. We met there. And then our start, all of a sudden, one week, the city told us that we had to take our, our signs down that were on the street telling you know, people that there's a church here. And I just thought, Lord, you know, how will anyone know? And so we took the signs down, and that next week, we had more first-time people than we'd ever had before. It was like the Lord was just, uh, you know, telling us, look, it's my work. I can do my work. Trust me. So I was always worried about growth in our church, um, feeling bad because it didn't grow. And one one time, the Lord just kind of, he spoke to my heart. We were on our way uh, to do visitation Monday night to visit the people who came to church Mm -hmm. from Sunday. And I remember we were in the middle of an intersection. There were five people we were going to have to see that night. And I thought, there's no way we can do this. In that intersection, the Lord just spoke to me. You know, not in an audible voice, but in my mind. He spoke to me and said, did you bring these people? And I said, no. He said, exactly. You didn't bring them, and you're not going to keep them. So go home. (laughs) And that was the last visitation we ever did like that. That's very like it. Well, our time is running out today, so thank you for your story. But we will invite you again and listen more of your story next week. And thank you for our listener who has been listening today. Thank you. We'll see you next week.
O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary, and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wandering love. O morning stars, together proclaim the holy birth, and praises sing to God the King, in peace to men on earth. How silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of His heaven. No ear may hear His coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive Him still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Phillips Brooks gently portrays the birth of Christ to bring the light into this dark world. As the world is pleased and brought happiness by the things that are brought to their eyes and ears. Christmas has a greater and more significant meaning, which is to remember the love of God, who came down on this earth to give up his life for our sin and salvation. It is now time to wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, as it has been my pleasure. I hope all of our listeners may have a Merry Christmas as we may all remember and cherish God's love for us. And God bless. Do you find it hard to sleep tonight? Resting by the Christmas lights. Could there be something you forgot? Beyond the bows and mistletoe, the tree with presents wrapped. was wrapped in swaddling clothes beneath the star one great and holy night the shepherds heard the angels sing the wise men brought